Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. Go on your way, carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Whoever listens to you, listens to me, and whoever rejects you, rejects me, and whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Luke 10, verse 3 to 4 and 16. Good evening and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. My name is Vivian McNenny and I'm thrilled to be with you today to offer homeschool insights and delights from our household where God is present in the dust upon my dark furniture and the weeds in my flower beds. Housework and gardening are not two of my most favorite things to do about the home and garden, but I manage it once a week and have found, as my mother taught me, praying through mundane tasks helps muchly. Sunny days mean raised spirits and we're happily enjoying our lovely English summer in our incredibly quiet flat. Each week, I entice an unsuspecting, hugely fascinating person to join me for part of the show. I offer intangibles like social media exposure. I would hand round crisps and cucumber sandwiches and pour frosted glasses of Ribena if I was face-to-face. Honest, I would. My fearless guests join me anyway to talk about aspects of family life which usually relate to homeschooling and always speak straight to the heart of parents who place the responsibility of child-rearing above their highest joy. Today, I'm embarking on a traveling theme, since it is the season, and I have a whole family on the show who have been away from their home for five years. You won't want to miss the Gifford family talking about their travels, so stay put. On the family front, I'll be talking about holidays we took when the children were young, so what are we waiting for? When I first got married, I imagined I'd travel extensively with my blue-eyed tour manager. He was in the music business and had been paid to travel around the world with famous people, ensuring they were on the, in the right place at the right time, performing on the right stage in the right city. I imagined his expertise would be shared with me, his wife, and we'd enjoy a life of moving, never long in one place, slow-handing it around the world a bit at a time. The first house we bought, I knew we would only be in for a year. My experience was such that buying and selling property was a lucrative business. I was the expert on this one since Mr. Blue Eyes had never owned a house. Trust me, I said. Okay, he said. So here we were in Dallas, my southern gentleman off working on the road most of the time, me at Ticketmaster, living the corporate middle-class white picket fence suburban life of sorts. On my own. When my tour manager came in off the road, the last thing he wanted to do was go gadding around the world, or America, or even Dallas. He just wanted to chillax, cook, potter, build, clean, in short, be a house husband. He loved his home, everything about it, the potential, the maintenance, the wood, the flower bed digging, the pool installation, even the taming of the back 40. In short, we were not going to be traveling anywhere fast, not as a couple or later as a family. When he was home, that's where he wanted to be, and it took me 28 years to pry him from his castle. 
By then, our immediate vicinity had changed. The cul-de-sac we bought the house on opened out onto a main road. Fields were replaced by shopping centres and cinemas. New housing developments popped up on what was scrubland. Traffic down our sleepy, leafy boulevard increased, and the neighbourhood was given over to renters on all sides. Oh, and we had four children. I'd quit my job to homeschool. Money became precious, and the house started to feel like a bit of a millstone, with family life nudging home improvement further and further down the list of priorities. We discovered a well-built home with a solid foundation can withstand a modicum of neglect, for a few years at least. We compromised. I needed a break from my four walls every now and again, preferably with a few overnight stays. So instead of travelling the world, we explored Galveston, far enough away to be considered a holiday, not so far we needed to take out a second mortgage. On the Gulf, we were guaranteed sand, sea, fabulous weather and value for money, as long as we went at the beginning of summer or at the end. Forget high season. Dollarinis were precious. We were able to use the fact that we weren't tied to traditional school holidays or a fixed office location to our advantage. My cowboy could work from anywhere. His office was the sunroom at home overlooking the pool and the back 40. My schoolhouse was the kitchen, bedroom, living room, pool, park, creek, van, mall or anywhere we happened to be. Galveston provided us with beach accommodation and a pool, preferred by my sand-challenged children at various times. The sea was on our doorstep. The condo we rented was always on the top floor, so we were never disturbed by noise from upstairs. From our fourth-floor position, we commanded an unobstructed view of the beach, the sea, fishing trawlers and large tankers on the horizon. Once we awoke to find a large sea turtle dead and washed up on the shore. We'd been studying sea turtles, so off we went on famille to investigate this magnificent specimen up close and personal. We ended up getting more than we could have hoped for as a home-educating family. Our intrepid school principal called A&M's Maritime Biology School in Alveston, and a scientist was dispatched within minutes. I'm not kidding to conduct a post-mortem with all of us in attendance. She was a wonderful and patient teacher, and we all enjoyed a very enlightening morning. The autopsy declared the turtle a young female, about two years old. With eggs, she'd apparently choked on a plastic bag, a common death caused by the human contingent on our planet. The scientists dug a hole in the sand and buried the sea giant, telling us that the turtle would decompose within weeks. Of course, there were many more finds to be had on the beach, but this was by far the most interesting and least threatening. Red algae and jellyfish were unpleasant, and sand fleas and glass were irritants. We took many a family photo among the seashore rocks and boulders. Habitual visits to sailing boats in the bishop's mansion changed up the background somewhat. In general, Galveston provided a picturesque backdrop in front of which we chronicled our growing family. Visits to the fish market were a daily occurrence, as there is nothing like a freshly caught fish cooked on the grill. My ex-tour manager and his sporty son would fish from a pier at night, never catching anything themselves, but enjoying the chase and eventual landing of a few drumfish by adjoining fishermen who possessed a skill they didn't have, or perhaps just plain old good luck. Another fishing expedition that turned into misery was in the deep sea. My poor sporty son became green about the gills the moment the engines fired up, and it was too late by then to disembark. 
He spent four hours not being very happy while men fished and women cooked. The combined smell of bacon and eggs and raw fish is one he will remember forever. Close to Galveston was the Houston Space Center, faithfully visited every year by enthusiastic pops and any child who wanted to go. My oldest son dreamed of being an astronaut and loved all things NASA. His brother enjoyed the simulators and other rides. My youngest daughter liked the clothing, and her older sister enjoyed all, and still does, the freeze-dried food, in particular the ice cream. During these excursions, I stayed on the beach to save money. That was a good excuse. And to soak up the rays. The odd margarita added to my total relaxation sensation. Sleeping arrangements, for the most part, didn't change during our Galveston years. We usually rented the same condo, and when we didn't, there was always a pull-out sofa instead of bunks just inside the front door for the girls. The boys, being older, got the twin beds in the spare room. My Texan and I always had our bedroom facing the sea, and the window seat served as a grand reading bay for me, with a window cracked open to let in the soft growling of the sea, gently lapping on the sand below. The laundry facilities were easy to use, and the children could be trusted with quarters and small packets of detergent to do whatever washing there was. It never amounted to much. My sporty son is famous for travelling light. He has been known to show up with nothing but the shorts he was standing up in. No t-shirt, no shoes. After that holiday, I took over the packing of his bag. Although we travelled by van and were barely restricted by space or weight, he preferred to make sure we didn't forget a surfboard or an umbrella rather than bothering about undies and toiletries. And I'm afraid roughing it is something I am not good at. My parents took me camping in Italy a couple of times, and for tent dwelling we really didn't rough it that badly, but there's something about showering in open stalls, even with a shower curtain, and being walked in on in a communal lavatory. I was five, and he was a big Italian who called his friends over to see the Bella, while I was thinking, just drop the curtain. That has me nervous when called to strip off with only a piece of canvas between me and the rest of the world. And as parents, we went to a cabin to the, at the lake a couple of times, and in the end, even though there were walls and our own bathroom, I found the rusticity unbearable. For me, Galveston was a holiday home with all the amenities. I enjoyed the kitchen and bathrooms, the bedroom and living room, the white walls, the seafaring decor and holiday atmosphere, and most of all, the balcony with a view. And talking about the sea and magnificent views, I'm fortunate today to be able to bring you part one of a conversation I had with Bian Gifford and her family aboard their sloop Totem in Malaysia. Bian and her husband Jamie school their three children on board and have been sailing the seas for five years. We'll be talking about their marriage, their decision to buy Totem and take off sailing, cultural differences they've encountered, people's reactions to what they were doing, and you'll hear their children chip in about their stay in Australia. And that's all coming up next on The Sociable Homeschooler. So come back and listen to more. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, The Sociable Homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Hello, Beyond. We have your husband, Jamie, with you. Hello, Jamie. Hello. And your children, Nyal. Mirren and Siobhan, welcome to my show. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello. And so you're all enjoying um, um, an afternoon on your boat in eastern Malaysia. You said you're in Borneo in the South China Sea. So um, thank you very much for taking time away from what you were doing to talk to me. I know it's about five o'clock your time. Is that right? That's right. The heat of the day is finally over. Oh, and, and it does change from, from day to evening? It's nice. Uh, it can get really hot and humid in the middle of the day, and, and right about now is when it just starts to get more comfortable. It's quite pleasant. Well, good, good. I can't say that about Texas, where I've lived for many years. It just There's no difference in temperature at any time of the day. It just, it just stays. If it's, a, if it's a 90 degrees at noon, it's 90 degrees at 9 or 10 o'clock at night as well. And we just go, oh, do we ever get a break? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, that's awful. All right, so um, the two of you and your three children have been living on a sailing vessel, Totem, for five years now? That's right. It's just five years now. All right. And I know that that's um, close quarters, and I know as homeschoolers, um, you know, we enjoy our family time with our children, but there's a little bit more space, and usually dad goes to work, so all of us aren't all together all of the time. So, um, Beyond, tell us um, a little bit, and Jamie, you can jump in here too, of course, um, about your marriage. Um, what have you learned during this period leading up to setting sail and during your, your sailing during these five years? What, what things have you learned? Well, I guess we're living proof that it's possible to live together in a very small space. We estimate it's probably 500 square feet, uh, 24-7 with your partner and three children and survive and actually be quite happy. Um, but um, it's uh, it does take some adjustment if you're used to spending a lot of time in separate um, circles of your life, whether you split into work and home and kids in different places with activities or, or reading independently. Um, it is, it is very different. Um, but ultimately relationships are really all about communication, whether you're in a house, uh, whether you're floating around, whether you're together 24 seven or not. And the kind of intensive time that we have together, just kind of fast forwards things, mm. um, I think that the cruising life tends to have more extremes in it where our, the incredible days are, are really incredible, but the tough days can be really tough, and that sort of stress can be very difficult in a relationship. Mm. So I guess the way we like to think about it in, in our own partnership and what we've seen in other couples too is that sailing off to paradise doesn't help a marriage that's in trouble, that fundamentally it's really about having a good partnership and clear communication first. 
That's right. What goes on inside is you take that with you wherever you go. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Jamie, um, what what's it like? What was it like to, you know, what, what kind of job did you have? And so how did your life change when you um, started sailing or planning to sail? Well, I've had a few careers. I was once uh, a professional sailor and sailmaker. And before we left to go cruising, I had a small distribution company that, um, that uh, brought medical equipment for children around the U.S., mm-hmm. And as we approached um, cruising, it was it was more and more um, time spent just focusing on our preparations because at the time it seemed like we were about to drive off a cliff mm. with the stress of how do you educate your children well, how do you keep everyone safe, are we doing the right things, and and in reality we had a lot of people telling us we weren't, um, but we we still felt confident and uh, we took it one step at a time and uh, it's gone well for us. And you're not rookie sailors. I mean, the two of you have have sailed seriously for a long time before you decided to do this. Yeah, that's that's right. I I grew up sailing. I I was a sailmaker and uh, I've had a lot of racing background and and being some Father sailed, and she mm-hmm. grew up. Uh, I grew up around as, boats a bit, but really came into it as a collegiate dinghy racer. Mm-hmm. But by the time Jamie and I met, sailing was a, a really important part of my life. So it's it's at our core, I guess. But we've also we've met many other families that have had much less sailing experience, and and many do fine. It's just taking one step at a time and and embracing that there's a big learning curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it goes well. And the irony is that we talk about our sailing experience and how we love sailing. In the last nine months, and how many thousand miles? Three? Six thousand miles. miles. Um, we've barely been sailing at all. There's no wind in this part of the world, and no in these really. seasons, we've actually been motoring around a lot. Yeah. But it well, is on a safe boat. <laughs> but, you know, I was wondering about that. You, you talked about um, motoring and, if you know, I mean, you, yeah, you talked about motoring because there is no wind for your sails. What do you do about gas? How much, how much gas do you carry on board? We've got a couple of tanks and our tankage is sufficient for a range that can get us from um, point to point. We just make sure we know where we can fuel up when we need to. Mm-hmm. But it's it's uh, it feels a little uncertain at times because it, and it's actually uh, diesel, not gas, uh, is the primary engine on the boat. But um, throughout Indonesia, it's technically illegal for us to go and take jerry cans to a fuel station uh, to fill up our tank. We carry about 400 liters on board and um, so oftentimes we would be in an anchorage and just ask the nearest fishing vessel can we buy any diesel from you and um, and almost always yes because they make a little bit of profit on the deal and they're happy to help out and uh, and so that's how it's normally gone but it's a lot of work carrying jerry cans around yeah yeah I bet Right, so you're you're um, happy to have the wind in your sails, but the weather doesn't always cooperate, or is it just the part of the world that you're in? Right now, it's a function of the part of the world yeah. that we're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so um, you set sail. When you were younger, what did you expect your lives to look like? Did you think that you would be doing this? 
I never did. No. But I, Jamie did. I did. This yeah. is I grew up wanting this. And the irony for that is is that as I got older and I was uh, sailing a lot, I thought it would never happen. And to me, the dream dropped. Uh, he was burned out. He, he sailed so much, it wasn't fun anymore. And it was, uh, it, it was um, returning to sailing when, when Bian really enjoyed it and we decided that we wanted to do it as a family in Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really had fun with it. And then she said, well, let's, let's turn this into a bigger thing. So it was Bian's motivation that got me back into the idea that this is possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, I had a guest on a few weeks ago who said there is never, you shouldn't wait to do things that the the present is always the best time. Because I had a son who gave up his, his career job because he wanted to start his own business. He just, he just quit working so that he could focus on his own business. And I'm kind of thinking, oh my goodness, well, I suppose he's young. It's the best time to do it because he doesn't have commitments yet and that. And this guest of mine said, you know, all time is the best time. You know, if you really want to do something, you need to do it, no matter how old you get. You know, you just need to go ahead and do it. Just take the plunge. Is that how, is that, you know, how you felt when you decided to do this? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right. Because, because who wants to have regrets for what they didn't do later mm-hmm. in life? Mm-hmm. That's right. And so many people are so worried you know, about the future and about, they just live their lives with worry and you just can't do that, can you? Well, you, you can't. Um, things certainly don't always go right, but it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. And I think if you, if you put thought into what you're doing so that you minimize the risk, um, but at least you go forward and you try it, the outcome's usually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, I read on one, in one of your posts that here you are on a boat and you're sometimes a thousand miles out. Now, that freaks me out because I don't think I could be in the middle of the ocean without seeing land. I'm not really, I'm not really a water person, but I couldn't be in the middle of the Australian outback either, knowing that, you know, I, I can't walk anywhere because I'm just too far. You're isolated. You know, there's all of this vast expanse of empty ocean. How does it feel to be that exposed? Uh, it's it's a two-sided coin, I think. Uh, on the one hand, it is just an amazing feeling when the stars are as clear as they are on Earth, and the sky is bright in the day, and the water's clear, and there's no other human around except what's who's on our boat. Mm-hmm. It's it really is wonderful. But there's also this precarious sense in the back of mind that says, "What if uh, we have a mechanical problem?" Uh, what if something happens? We can't get uh, any assistance soon. We're really left to our own devices mm-hmm. uh, for most things. And, um, and it keeps you thinking, but it also keeps us um, checking out our environment, being really aware of what's going on around us and on the boat so that we, um, we stay in tune with things. And that way, if there's going to be a problem, we're probably, um, we're hopefully aware of it before or, or try to b- prevent these things. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have to, like, like a flight plan, um, do you have to, you know, sort of submit your, your course anywhere? No, you don't. You can, um, and it, it's a really good idea before a long passage, and we call it a float plan, a lot like a flight plan. Yeah. Um, 
to to put a, a float plan together and give it to a trusted friend who will monitor our progress. Um, and when we've had large pack, uh, passages, that is something that we've done. Um, and then because we're able to update our uh, position, our location uh, from the radio that's on board the boat, even though we're no, you know we don't have phones, we're not connected to the internet, we can still get our location out to a place that our friends ashore can access and understand if we're. Um, tracking as expected or if, if something's not right. Mm. Mm. Well, <laughs> any, any boats? I mean, you see, obviously, when you're, when you're out that far, you might see other ships, and, or, or does that not happen? It's pretty uncommon, actually, really? when we're far out. When, if we're following a, a coastline and a few hundred miles offshore, then, then often we see ships, and every once in a while... We come in close proximity to a, another boat, and that's that's a fun event because, for example, once we were off the coast of Mexico, and uh, and a boat that we had met before heard us. They contacted us in the radio. They said that they had just caught uh, quite a large yellowfin tuna, but they didn't have enough space on board their boat in the refrigerator to keep it and asked if we wanted to come by. So we had this kind of we met mid, in the ocean, <laughs> mid ocean rendezvous and we baked the cake and threw it across to them and they threw tuna steaks across to us. And it was, uh, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> oh, that's but in the, in the 3000 miles of our passage from Mexico to French Polynesia, outside of that uh, friend that we swapped the cake for tuna with, I think we saw two commercial vessels the entire time. Really? Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, so you're, um, gosh, you're, you're doing a 3,000-mile passage, and I noticed that it hadn't really occurred to me, but it makes absolute sense, that you ha- somebody has to be awake and on watch 24-7. Yep. Right? Yep. While, while you're traveling. So, That's right. So how many days does that mean? I mean, are we going into weeks, or what, what's going on here? Yeah. That particular passage for us took 19 days, 19 days. and uh, no stopping, 24/7, uh, trading off watches, and uh, and it, it was a it was a long trip, but it was a great trip. Uh, we know a number of other boats that got into the 40 to 50 day length, which is really a long time. Yeah, yeah. So how do you do that? You share it just between the two of you. Your children don't are, the, are any of them old enough to take a watch? Uh, they are. Uh, typically, um, passages have been shared between Jamie and I. On that one 19-day passage, we did have a third adult come and join us. Um, and at that point, Niall was only 10 years old, but he was capable of standing watch during the day. So if if we needed someone just to have eyes um, out in the cockpit, that could, uh, Niall could jump in and help out. Uh, he's old enough now at 14 to stand a watch. But we don't have as long passages typically right now. We, we've had uh, a six-dayer last year from Australia, um, and that's the longest one where, you know, if Jamie and I have kind of a rough night and we need to catch a little sleep during the day, then Niall can be assigned to, to be on watch for a few hours. So what, what are you watching for? Niall, Niall, you can answer this question. What are you watching for? Well, we're watching for ships, for buoys, for nets. The weather, anything that could present a problem or could be dangerous to the boat. Mm-hmm. And is it on automatic pilot, or are you are you actually, you know, sort of steering the ship, the boat? It, it is on automatic pilot. Um, however, there have been times where we have had to manually steer the boat. Mm. And, and and are you doing that? Do you do that? 
I do. You do. Are you enjoying yeah. learning um, how to do this from your parents? I am. I enjoy it very much, actually. Yeah. We've had, I've had quite a nice time. Yeah. And have you got plans? Are you um, planning on stepping into your mum and dad's um, footsteps and maybe racing one day? Or cruising. Or cruising, yeah. I'm not sure. I'd really like to go to Europe, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah you'd like to go to Europe. I think you might be going to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> We're working on it. You're working on it. All right. Okay, well, um, I've just got to go on a very short break. I'm talking to Bjorn and Jamie Gifford and their family on board their sailing vessel, Totem. And we'll be back in just a few moments. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Why do I feel so lousy? Why are my medications working? Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. The author of the book, Help, My Body is Killing Me, Solving the Connections of Autoimmune Disease to Thyroid Problems, Fibromyalgia, Depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better, to make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live, Monday nights at 9, 10 Central, here on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Well, Bjorn, um, when you first set out sailing, um, you described yourselves as semi-retired, whatever that meant. Um, did you have, at first, a vacation mentality? Was it um, like a dream-come-true moment? How, how were those first few days, and how did you do that? Because I think you eased into it. So tell us a little bit about that. The first few days, well, when we, when we lit- literally kind of cut the dock lines from the marina where we'd been living in Bainbridge Island, Washington, and took off, we were sailing down the west coast of North America. And it was actually a smaller crew. It was my husband and I and two friends of ours. The kids um, drove down to San Francisco to meet us with my parents because we knew this could be a rough stretch of water and we didn't want to start off with something that they would have a bad experience with. So for me, it, I was giddy. I was I was on a vacation. I was on a holiday. It was so, I had this big, dumb grin on my face when I look back at those pictures. We'd worked so hard to achieve this dream and we were setting off on our dream. Um, and we were, we were heading out with... Um, a lot of responsibility, but not with our three biggest responsibilities in the world. And so there was a lightness to it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, Jamie, how was it for you? Oh, very much the same, but but um, it quickly uh, shifts for us, I guess, in a way that it's, it's really, we're not living in a vacation mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 
we're in beautiful tropical settings, and and we cruisers have a an expression that is cruising is maintenance in exotic locations. So while we're in these great places, there's a lot of work involved, and it really it seems like um, maybe it's a vacation like thing, but it's it's a lot of work. Homeschooling is a lot of work. We're trying to find our, our way around. Uh, unfamiliar uh, towns and villages. We're trying to get supplies on the boat, or 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 finding diesel, or whatever it is, or managing weather situations, mm-hmm. and and uh, it's it's quite a lot of work. But it's true that initial departure did feel like a vacation. But there have been very few vacation moments um, as we've been cruising. It's it's really uh, life goes on. We have a lot of routine, everyday chores, uh, work, and responsibilities, and. Uh, and it's not that image that's easy to have from the outside. I think of swinging in a in a hammock and a under palm trees with a fruity drink. Yeah, I'm sure you do that every now and again. <laughs> every now, oh, absolutely, sure. No, we sure we do. But <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I was going I was going to talk about what what does the Gifford family meal table look like while you're crossing and and um, having to you know sort of be vigilant, and then when you actually um, more in a marina? Do you more in marinas? Is that what you do? Um, so, well, in a marina, we'd say when you know we're berthed or, or tied up in a marina. Burst. Okay. When we're on a passage, um, I typically like to pre-cook a lot of meals because if the weather is rough, um, it can be dangerous to use the stove, and it can simply be impossible to use the stove if we're if the boat is really bouncing around a lot. So, I typically make a lot of um, things that can be eaten by hand. Um, so if we were just sitting there in a, in a very active boat, you can just feed yourself a burrito um, and have things like cakes and breads that we can just tear off and eat or hearty stews that'll stick to the bottom of a bowl you can dunk your bread in. Uh, when, we're, when we're in a, a locale, I love going to the fresh markets. And in Indonesia, um, Especially, it's been just fascinating going, you know, going into a village, finding the fish market, uh, finding, uh, you know, the wet market for fresh fruit and vegetables, and and just looking for whatever looks fresh and interesting to try to figure out what to do with it. Right. So so far, what has been the most difficult place that you've visited so far, as far as um, viewing the culture and the environment? Have there been some places that you've, you've walked around or, or lived for a few days and, and gone, the sooner I can get out of here, the better. Mm. I don't know if we have any places where we felt like we wanted to flee so much as um, places that captured our, our interest because they were askew in a certain way. So, for example, in Papua New Guinea, we had heard all sorts of scary stories about how dangerous it is, and and it has its dangerous places for sure. But we were able to easily um, go to places that we felt very, very safe, and we met amazing, wonderful people that were incredibly friendly. And what we what we learned though was that these people live in villages that um, huts were made from pieces of airplane wing wreckage from World War II. And they have absolutely no help from the government. And Papua New Guinea is a country that is incredibly resource-rich. 
in in mining and timber and fish resources and oil and oil resources and that uh, wealth is um, is extracted by foreign companies and held within a very few people within the government the the the, the, the local folks get nothing uh, we were we were helping first aid applying first aid to numerous kids that had that had sores on their legs and things. There's not a Band-Aid shared between them. Um, another example would be here in, in Borneo, where it's quite disturbing uh, to, to go into the heart of Borneo and um, to, to learn that the orangutan population and the proboscis monkeys, they're, they're quickly going towards extinction and it's because of habitat loss, habitat loss due to palm oil plantations. And, and we were really kind of shocked about how naive we were about um, 80% of Borneo forests are gone. They're, they're burned down and, and palm oil plantations are put up in their place. And they're not very good about relocating animals, these magnificent orangutans. So it's, it was quite eye-opening. But to go back to your original question, too, when, on one other count, um, was there a place where you kind of couldn't wait to leave? And I do have one, um, and that was Vonimo in PNG. And, um, and it, it was back to what Jamie had talked about before, about, you know, it had a reputation for not being a safe place. And, and we found ways to travel in, in safe regions there. But we specifically avoided places that had a couple of different factors to them, that they were centers for one of these extraction industries and that they were population centers where people were away from, from their family clans. Um, and this town had all of those things, but we had to go there because it was where the Indonesian consulate was. Um, and then, of course, none of the paperwork went as easily as we hoped it would, and so we were there several days instead of one day. And it was a little stressful, and I was happy to go. But the truth is, at the end of the day, it, it was also fine. And ultimately, the people that we met there were lovely and reinforced the great memories that we have of PNG. Well, and like, like all countries, the people on the ground are fantastic. I mean, they have the oh. same ideals. They have the same love for their family. It's the government that messes the whole thing up. <laughs> the government are the business, and they help make the wheels go round. But still, um, it also it taints the image. When we left the U.S., we had heard going towards Mexico as our first foreign destination. And we heard over and over and over again about all the drug wars and things. And everybody said, you're risking your family and your safety. How dare we put our children in danger like that? <laughs> Literally these things. And we got to Mexico and those issues are real, but they have nothing to do with people that aren't involved in illegal drugs and, and that underworld. And we weren't. And we felt very safe there. And we met only friendly people and we never locked our, our boat up. We felt completely safe. <laughs> You know, and, and a lot of people are put off. I mean, I've got American friends who will not leave America. And they, and I want to go to India. With this time that I'm in England, my husband and I want to go to India. And some of my friends say, India, it's so dangerous. Why do you want to go there? And I'm going, oh, because I know. You know, I've lived in England where we have 
the Southern Ireland situation, where the North, you know, where where there's a, there's a big problem with terrorists. When I was when I was young, and people would say, "Don't go to Ireland." Well, it's only taking place in like five streets. The rest of Ireland is fine and safe to go to. You know, I'm going. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! You know, sort of people are just so frightened. Fear stops people from doing a lot of things. Get over that. Um, okay, so one of the first, you, not one of the first things, but you stopped in Australia for a while and mm-hmm. worked, and you still lived on your um, sailing vessel, and you um, sent the children to school. Um, what, what was going on there? Well, Australia was a, a great place for us to take a break and earn some money to enable us to keep traveling, mm-hmm. um, and we were lucky to have a really uh, solid opportunity uh, where I spent some time working in my old profession. And um, Sydney for one year was beautiful, but too too costly to put the kids in school. We relocated north to Brisbane, which was a different state, uh, where the kids were able to get enrolled as uh, work visa kids. And uh, and it was terrific. Um, it was a great experience. Yeah. Well, so tell me, you said in Sydney they couldn't, it was too expensive to put them in school. So what did you do with them? Did you continue homeschooling them then? That's right. So Jamie uh, was at home uh, aboard the boat with the kids. He kept up homeschooling, and they've got to see and explore all the neat things that Sydney has to offer. Uh, and I trundled into the CBD and went to work every day. Yeah. Um, so, um, Nyal, I have a question for you because I read um, a blog, and I'm not picking on you. Um, I will talk to the others. <laughs> but you said in your blog that school in Australia, the school you went to, um, was unmercifully strict. Tell me something about that. Well, uh, unmercifully, I, I probably wrote that after being in detention, but um, <laughs> I, was, I was actually, I mean, I'm, 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 I really try to do my best, and I was putting a lot of effort into getting things right and, you know, getting the dates right and everything. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I, I, in Australia, I was in detention three times, um, twice because my bus was late and thus I arrived at school late. And he's on the public transportation, so yeah, a little bit of his control. Yeah. And, and the other time was because I was wearing the wrong of several uniforms on a particular day. Right. You said that. So why did they have three separate uniforms? I have no clue. <laughs> you don't know. You never found out. You never said Ridiculous. why. Honestly, you can't just, you know, come to school in shorts or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good here, so. So did you adjust at all to your year there? Well, I mean, when I started, I adjusted to the academics and the general routine very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, I mean, it took me some time to adjust to the rules and all the students. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found it difficult to keep up with the deadlines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, Mirren, um, tell me a little bit about um, your school experience in Australia. I know you had been to school. Had you been to kindergarten in America before you went? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, Mirren, you only had kindergarten experience. Yes. So, going to school was in Brisbane, it was pretty new for you, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, can you tell, tell me what you liked about school in Brisbane? It was enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, what about you, Siobhan? Uh, You had never been to school because you were a little bit young. So what was going to school in Australia like for you? It was different because I wasn't used to going to school and having to wear a uniform. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Since... I've never been to a school where you have to wear a uniform. Right. Except Sydney, which was two weeks. No, we don't even usually bother with shoes at home, so. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and um, did you go to the same school? Did did uh, the um, did uh, Meryn and uh, Siobhan, did you both go to the same school or were you at different schools? Me and Meryn went to the same school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and was it an all-girls school? No, it was no. a boy and girl school. All right, okay. And um, it, at the at the end of it, had you made a lot of friends? Yes, yeah, many. Mm-hmm. And Marin is still trading some email with uh, uh, friends back at home. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Really? <laughs> in Brisbane. <laughs> back at home in Brisbane. So I was I was going to um, ask the three children. Um, what's it like saying goodbye? I know that um, you meet cruisers and you make friends. And then they leave, or you leave, and what does that feel like? It can be it can be difficult, it's um, hard, but yeah. we have gotten used to, you know, splitting paths, going different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, although more than once we've reunited and mm-hmm. seen again other other cruisers and other friends. Yeah. So so do these other cruisers? Are they doing the same kind of thing as you, or maybe they're just doing it for a shorter time? Uh, often yes, often yes, mm-hmm. but some are doing things similar to ours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so you keep up. You can keep up electronically, obviously, by um, skyping or email if if you if you're somewhere where where your internet is reliable. Um, do yeah. you do that? Are you doing that too? We do, and we um, and and we do not. We actually don't need email to 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 keep to keep connected. We can use our radio to send emails oh, to other okay. friends. Well, that's we interesting. Yeah, so we, we keep well connected with email. Oh, good, good. All right, well, we're going to have to um, finish uh, for now and um, go on a short break. And actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to carry on talking to um, Bian and Jamie and her wonderful family, and we're going to um, continue the conversation in um, my next show. So for this week... I'm going to be saying goodbye to the Gifford family, but next week they will be back, so you will want to come and listen to the rest of their story. So for now, it's bye. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriend at principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. 
Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's the Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. I've been talking to the Gifford family, Bian and her husband, Jamie, and their three children, Niall, Marin, and Siobhan, about their life on board their 47-foot sloop currently moored in Malaysia. They homeschool their three children on board and have been sailing for five years after deciding that regret was not something they wanted to live with. Both seasoned sailors, they took off on their adventure in the face of concern about their sanity. Living on board their sailing vessel suits them perfectly, although the lifestyle comes with its share of routine maintenance only in exotic locations, they say. They answer the question, why with why not, and plan to stay out for as long as the family wants to. Follow Bian and her family on www.svthesailingvessel-totem.blogspot.com. You'll find a link on my webpage. Next week, I'll bring you the second part of our conversation, so be sure to come back and hear more about this ordinary family living a remarkable life. Our family holidays to Galveston weren't exactly life on the high seas. I loved them nonetheless. Driving to the seaside was the best. Only once did we take our own van. Usually we rented a bus-like thing, and the novelty of room to spread out in made the journey a joy. We took all the perishables from the fridge in a cooler, the queen of picnics even then. I would make several sets of sandwiches to last a couple of stops and always break open a tin of shortbread. Sometimes we travelled at night so the children could sleep. One year we made the journey with my parents, who were visiting from England to see The Sound of Music that our oldest son was in. We had to wait until the show closed before leaving for our holiday, but we had the van packed and everyone was ready to leave at six. The only ones who weren't so sure of a five-hour trip with four exuberant children were my parents, but their fears were soon allayed because I always said, when you expect great things from your offspring, you will be rewarded. My positive vibes were the only thing bouncing off the walls that journey. After serenading us with a word-perfect run-through of all the numbers from The Sound of Music, they fell sound asleep. My parents rented their own condo on the floor below us, and the children took it in turns to spend a night with Granny and Grandpa and stay for breakfast. For us, the memories made while on holiday in a familiar place that we'd been frequenting since our oldest was a baby were invaluable. Being bombarded by little bodies hurling themselves off the side of the pool into our arms, holding hands and seeing how far we could wade out to sea, buying fish from the fresh market and stoking the groupie cats, eating ice cream while a torrential rainstorm flooded the streets around us, riding a bicycle seating four along the promenade, going to the cinema, speeding down long slides at a glass-enclosed water park, walking along piers, beachcombing, strolling through the historic district, visiting the national park, watching albatrosses fly past the lounge balcony, listening to the waves and the familiar call of seagulls that will always shout holiday to me, making sandcastles, playing board games, sketching, drawing and colouring, eating on the beach, taking photographs, going to mass and getting to know the priest as regular annual visitors, shopping at Brookshire's, smelling the salty air, making new friends and most of all, being together at the beginning or end of the season, without the crowds to interfere with peaceful thoughts and gentle conversations. My favourite thing about these holidays was the breaking of routine. We could eat when we wanted, sleep late, huh, that never happened with a beach and pool close by and young, excited children, taking naps in the sun while sunbathing. 
I didn't have to do much planning to go to this belovedly familiar place, and we had no space or weight restrictions. Because we homeschooled, we were together already all the time, but things did change. There was no formal school, but as in the case of the washed-up turtle, learning was going on all the time, whether they knew it or not, and those bonds just kept getting stronger. It seems I enjoy the familiar, doesn't it? I used to be just as happy having no routine, but somehow God has changed my heart to become more stable. Even when I'm moving, and these last few years have been a little upheavally, there are still things that stay constant. My morning habit of journaling, reading the Bible and praying, for example, goes with me wherever I am. As does the routine I've developed just before my show each week. It sets me up delightfully, and I feel more secure knowing I have special things to do before going live for an hour. I still get nervous, you know, and this is my 178th show. My showtime in London is six hours later than when I'm in Texas, so I can be a little more adventurous knowing I have all day to make it back to my home studio in time to regale you with stories. So I do venture out a couple of times, which I'd never do in Texas, worried that I may get snarled up in traffic or break down. Not much can happen when walking in the park or going to the shops. On Fridays, after my devotions and yoga, my blue-eyed cowboy and I clean the flat. My producers always laugh that I scour the bathroom before going on air. Then I work on my show, check email and perhaps a blog, and uh, maybe I write a little bit. I take a late shower after my computer work is finished, and my blue-eyed cowboy and I then trot off to the shops before lunch to get in the weekly food. This morning, we were at the checkout unloading our basket, and the announcer came over the loudspeaker and said, Good morning, Sainsbury shoppers. Now that summer has finally joined us, why not look at our special fruits and salads, especially selected to enhance those picnics in the sun, or whatever it was she was advertising. We do love to make fun of our weather. I liked the fact that it was a personal message, not just a canned one. Then, after we've dragged everything home and unloaded, we have a late lunch and the first coffee of the day. I usually time my walk to get me home an hour before showtime to check internet connections and Skype. A forced march, as my Texan calls it, calms me down, and today I heard birds call and fall about obscurely from the trees, a brilliant observation made by Iris Murdoch in her book I'm reading called The Nice and the Good. And here I am, pleasantly enjoying the strong murmuration of bees. Another brilliant Iris Murdochism, don't you think? Anyway, I'm done with my murmurations for another week. I'll be back same time, same place next week with more adventures on the high seas with part two of my Gifford family conversation. It's Friday at noon in Texas or 6 p.m. here in Merry Old. Without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband who believes in love at first sight, our four children who are the result of that belief, the hardworking staff at Toginet Radio, my guests Bjorn, Jamie, Niall, Maren, and Siobhan Gifford, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Hannah, Joel, Rosemary, Kathleen, Jane, Olivia, Esme, Millicent, Tina, and oodles of others who are part of my growing audience. Stay tuned to Toginet all the time and catch lots of great shows to glide you through your day. Take care and be safe. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Number 6, verses 24 to 26. 
thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toginat. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who were willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com.